When you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll notice that what you have there is the man Christ Jesus. And you'll notice that the man Christ Jesus in these Gospels is absolutely, unwaveringly impeccable with regard to his nature and his character. The narratives of his life are essentially the narratives of a perfect man. And yet when you get to the end of every one of them, the end of Matthew, the end of Mark, the end of Luke, the end of John, the perfect man is put to death. You see the Lord of glory agonizing in the garden of Gethsemane in prayer with His Father. And then He comes out from that agonizing prayer with determination. He meets His betrayer. He's arrested. He's mocked. He's beaten. He's crucified. He's put to death. These gospel stories, this story of of the perfect man, Christ Jesus, is God's answer to the supreme question of history, which is, how can a man, a sinful man, be made right with God? The answer to the question of Ezekiel or, or Exodus 33. How can God do both of these things? How can He be merciful and yet by no means clear the guilty? How, how, how does this work? The answer is in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus Christ, impeccably perfect man, living a perfect life, put to death. And the Scriptures and all sound theology stemming from the Scriptures answer this question, that a man is put right with God by a forensic act called justification. And that comes through faith in this work of Christ and faith alone. The life of the perfect man, the death of the perfect man, that work, faith in Him, results in a righteous declaration by God. As we say many times, faith is the, is the hand of the soul that reaches out and, and grabs Christ, His perfect life, His death in the place of sinners, and does not let go and says, I'm going to drag this person and this work all the way into the presence of God on Judgment Day. And when He says, why should I let you into my heaven? That hand of faith holds up Christ. Not one single work of ours. It holds up this impeccably perfect Christ. It's the hand of the soul taking hold of Christ. And having gotten Christ, the believer gets all that Christ has done credited to their account as if he or she had done it themselves. Impeccably perfect life, credited to your account. I I didn't live that life. Doesn't matter. You've placed your faith in the one who did. I deserve a death. As we've talked about the Passover recently. Doesn't matter. The blood has been spilled. A death has already occurred. Your account says that the death has already been paid. Through faith, Christ's life is put on our ticket. Christ's death is put on our ticket. All He's done, all that He's won, is made over to the believer through faith. This is the only way that any man can be made right with God, and no man is made right with God who has not believed on Christ. One standing with God is at the moment of first faith 
and for eternity credited upon what Jesus Christ has already accomplished has been mentioned or referenced. An everlasting righteousness has been brought in. Not a righteousness that gets us to the gates, the pearly gates, and you take it off and you go in upon your own righteousness. An everlasting righteousness for, for a million millions of years in eternity, our standing before God will be because of the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Now, this act of faith that we speak about with regard to justification, as essential as it is to our personal salvation, is really a a specific or particular manifestation of a larger doctrine of faith, which looks outside of self and even the visible world and takes hold of all of the promises of God. Faith, in, in its scriptural terms, isn't merely an act in the order of salvation, a singular act in a moment of time that you perform there and then you're made right with God and that's all that faith is. From from a scriptural perspective, faith is the entire worldview of a Christian. It's everything for the Christian. By faith, a Christian views this world, which he can see, in light of another world that he's never seen. By faith, the world which the Christian cannot see is as real to him as if he had seen it. Because God's revealed it to him. It's there. He knows it's there. Have you seen it? No. But I know it's there. And the Christian lives every moment in faith. It's our our worldview. In, In the Bible, and we see this in the New Testament in several places, Abraham is preeminently the man of faith. Look at Abraham. Look at what Abraham did. And he's, he's brought in and used as this illustration. Now we do know that Abraham exercised this, this saving faith in the coming Christ, whereby he was declared righteous. But Abraham is also set forth as the, the man who lived a life of faith. It wasn't just that one act that he did. It was his whole life that was a a life of faith. He was looking outside of the visible world for all of the promises of God to him. Not just that one act of, of justification. All the promises of God. In Hebrews 11, we see Abraham living in tents by faith in the promised land. In other words, Abraham was living in the land of promise. He was there. Go go to a land I'll show you. Okay, I'm here. And he lived by faith there. Lived in a tent, a a mobile dwelling there in the land of promise. Why? Abraham, you're here. You've got it. Settle down. Hebrews 11 says this, and I'm going to personalize the language just for Abraham, but it makes it, it applies it broadly. But the author of Hebrews says that Abraham died in faith. He didn't act faith up until the time when he stepped into the promised land and said, all right, I've got it. No, he died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that he was a stranger and an exile on the earth. Not in the promised land. He was a stranger there. He was an exile there. That wasn't his homeland. He didn't say, well, I'm a stranger in the promised land. He says... I'm in the promised land, I've got my feet in it, and I'm an exile on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if Abraham had been thinking of that land from which he had gone out, Ur of the Chaldeans, 
If that's what he was longing for when he said, I'm a stranger, I'm a sojourner, if that's what he had in mind, he would have had an opportunity to return. I'll go right back to where I came from. But as it is, Abraham desired a better country. That is, a heavenly one. And this is amazing. Therefore, this is Hebrews 11, therefore, in light of Abraham's desire, while living in the promised land, to have another heavenly land, in light of that, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called Abraham's God. Because God had prepared for him, Abraham, a city. That was the promise. Abraham longed for it. God says, I've promised it, and therefore God was not ashamed to be Abraham's God. He lived in the promised land, and yet Abraham wanted heaven. This is the worldview of faith. He's righteous based on, based on the, the imputed righteousness of Christ. He's right with God. He's not satisfied with just being right with God. He says, I want to be with Him. I want to go there where He is. It's a whole worldview. Commenting on this attitude of the patriarchs, Gerhardus Voss in a sermon says this, quote, The refusal to build an abiding habitation in a certain place must be due to the recognition that one's true permanent abode is elsewhere. The not feeling at home in one country has for its inevitable counterpart homesickness for another. Why, why are you not home here? Because it's not my home. Later he says, there existed with the patriarchs an intelligent and outspoken apprehension of the celestial world. It was their whole worldview. We're in the promised land. And we're living by faith. We're looking beyond it. In other words, they wanted heaven. Now many in our day, I fear this is sort of a, 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 a response but we would look at Abraham and we would categorize Abraham as a, a retreatist. This person who abdicates his responsibility on the earth in order to sit and gaze into the heavens. Now, obviously, Scripture doesn't bear that out. But I think this kind of accusation would very often, in, in our thinking, be lobbied against anyone who says things like, this world is not my home. Or... I'm kind of homesick for a country to which I've never been before. Or, love not the world, nor the things in the world. Now, I think this extreme comes from a failure to understand something. And if anybody's interested in this, this sermon by Voss, I would recommend it, but he alludes to this. We fail to understand that the earth is second. Heaven is first. And on the earth, we have copies of a heavenly reality. And so what we see is not the fullness. It's never been the fullness. And so a desire for a heavenly homeland is not a desire to retreat from the first in order to escape to the second. It's a desire to return to the fullness of God's design for mankind. It's a desire to be with God. That's where we started. You don't go on vacation and then go on vacation from vacation when you come back home. Because home is first. That's where you live. 
It's a desire to be with God. And here's the thing. Once, once God came to Abraham, Abraham knew from that moment, there is another world. That's where I'm going. I'll do whatever you say in light of that other world. He, he longed for that true home. And this, this, it was this longing which motivated Abraham to live the life that he lived, which the Holy Spirit then picks up and says, live like Abraham. It was the, he was the model of living, breathing, Christian faith. Simply put, the longing of the patriarchs and every generation of saints before them and since them has been for a heavenly city and it is the desire to be with God. It's positive. It's not negative. It was to have what was lost, not to leave necessarily what we have. And speaking of this otherworldliness Voss says again, quote, The core lies not in what it relinquishes, but in what it seeks. Escape from the world here below and avoidance of the evil in the world do not furnish its primary motive. In other words, it's not primarily negative. It's not primarily just trying to get away. It's primarily positive. We're not trying to escape. We're seeking. We're moving forward. It's not primarily retreat, but return. Now, this otherworldliness of the Christian carries over into the New Testament in, in these words, or words like these, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. There's some people that have no theology for that, that statement, that command from the apostle. Now, a lot of us have been in, we've come from these circles where we've seen what we would consider an overemphasis on heaven to the exclusion of our role in the world here and now. And in light of this, we swing all the way over to the other extreme where heaven and the age to come are just a footnote to what's happening now. I would argue that the error, which we very often see as overemphasizing heaven, is not in the amount of time they spend singing or talking about Beulah land. It's in what they constitute as the glory of that land. We're going to see our loved ones there. We're going to walk on streets of gold. I'm going to, I'm going to rub my fingers across gates of pearl. That's not the glory of heaven. Abraham sought a city whose designer and builder is God. Paul says, seek that which is where Christ is. It's not that they overemphasize heaven. It's that they misunderstand heaven. And so it, it doesn't help us, and this is what we have to guard against, it doesn't help us to swing all the way over to the other extreme where we give priority to the here and now. The, these extremes, I think you've noticed, they're very often like a hula hoop, and the farther around you go, you really come back around to the backside of what you were trying to leave. For, for both of these extremes, Christ Himself is a means to something else. On the, on the one hand, Christ is the means to get to my loved ones who've gone on before and, and, the, and to walk the streets of gold. The other extreme is Christ is the means for me to transform the world in the here and now. But in the middle of that, there is a balance. We have the patriarchs, we have the apostles, 
And what they saw was that everything other than Christ was a means to get more of Christ. It was all to get Him. It was all aiming at Him. He's the goal. He's the prize. The desire for a heavenly city, again, was the desire to be with the builder. Seeking that which is above is to seek Christ, who's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's, it's I want Him. And that's why Abraham is preeminently the man of faith. It's not just because he left Ur, but it's because he lived in a tent in Canaan. He said, this is still not my home. I'm here, still not my home. He wanted heaven because he wanted God. He longed to be with that God that came to him in Ur. He says, I'll do whatever you say. I'll go wherever you say to go. Because he knew that God himself was at the end of that journey. Now having finished chapter 20 of the Revelation, we come to chapter 21 and we're seeing what is the biggest and most illustrative description of heaven found in all of Scripture. We saw at the end of chapter 20, those whose names were not, or those names that were not written in the Lamb's book of life were thrown into the lake of fire. Well, that implies that the names which were written in the Lamb's book of life were not thrown into the lake of fire. So it it would stir up in the, the mind of the reader a question. What happens to the people whose names are listed listed in the Lamb's book of life? from the foundation of the world. What about that, those people? Well, the Bible is very clear, and I think this is probably one of the most basic teachings that we, we even begin with our, our children. They go to heaven. The wicked are cast into hell. The people of God go to heaven. So chapters 21 and 22 are describing heaven, the eternal state which awaits the glorified saints. Now we're just going to look at verses 1 through 4 today, which just give a, an overview of, of the blessedness of heaven. We see here, and I've divided it up into two parts, a heavenly habitation and a divine explanation. As I was telling some of the guys yesterday, one of my favorite books is uh, Learning in Christ's School. I think it was Ralph Vinning, and he, he goes through the, the lists of, or categories of Christians in 1 John 2, infants, young men, old men, infants, young men, old men, and he kind of breaks these down as levels of, of advancement as a Christian, as you grow. And, and the largest portion of the book, he's dealing with those younger levels. And then when he gets to the young men, it's a little shorter. And then when he gets to the old men, I think it might be two pages. And his point is, I'm not there yet. This is as far as I can go. I just have to leave you here. And should the Lord bless, maybe somebody else could take up the work. And that's how I feel coming to Revelation 21. I'm not there yet. And I've never been there. And I don't think the language here is meant to give us this... this, uh, exhaustive description that answers every question that we have. And so the, the only thing I can do is walk through the words and the phrases and try to draw some biblical parallels here. But I hope that this will stir your heart to long for the same thing that the patriarchs long for, that the apostles long for, which is heaven. So first we have a heavenly habitation. Verses 1 and 2, John sees a new creation and a new city. First, there's a new creation. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
4, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So again, we have this language of new and first. Not new and old, but new and first. The new being compared with the first. Now the first time we saw the first heaven and the first earth was in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. All creation was good, but we know it didn't stay that way. Mankind sinned, Adam sinned. After the fall, we have the language of curse. Genesis 3, cursed is the ground because of you. In Romans 8, Paul says that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, God. He subjected the creation to futility. Romans 8.22, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. From the very beginning, all of this creation, which was once good, now ruined because of sin, has been longing and urging and craving for something else. All creation. In God's purposes, the creation was subjected to futility and made to be the theater of man's struggle under the sun. And then we saw in chapter 20 of the Revelation that that first creation is going to be done away with on the final day. Revelation 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. An illustrative way to describe the disillusion, or you might see some authors use the word the conflagration of the created order. What does that look like for earth and sky to run from the presence of Christ? I have no idea. Listen to how Peter describes it. 2 Peter 3, 7, The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly, which we read about in chapter 20. Now according to the Noahic covenant... The earth is going to continue as it is right now until this day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And on that final day, the earth is going to cease to be as it is presently. And again, if we put this passage with what we've seen in the Revelation, it's the same day as the final judgment, as the casting of the wicked into the lake of fire. That is the day of the Lord, or what Peter goes on to reference as the day of God. 2 Peter 3.12, the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. He says in verse 10, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And that will be on the same day that the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The works of the book, the books that were opened we saw previously. Again, what exactly this looks like, we can't say. We have these startling descriptions that baffle the mind. We, we can't explain it. But it's going to go away. This, this old creation that was once good, then cursed in the fall, is going to be wiped clean. He says in Revelation 21.1, this statement that seems like a, almost like an odd intrusion to the text, and the sea was no more. Now, if we were reading this literally, we would say, why do you have to tell us that the sea is no more if the heavens and the earth have just ran away? 
Um, they left and left the water there. That, that doesn't make it. It's, it's obviously symbolic. Because throughout the Scriptures, and especially in the Revelation, the sea is a place of turmoil and of danger and of death. Just in this book, the beast came out of the sea in chapter 13. In chapter 17, Babylon was seated on many waters. In chapter 20, verse 13, the sea was that place that gave up the dead. So the sea represents all of these things which were creating difficulty and affliction for the people of God in the present age. Here we see that's gone. It's gone completely. So the first creation, cursed and subjected to futility, the stage of suffering for mankind, it's gone. In the language of Psalm 102, it's changed like a garment. Rolled away and a new one put on. Now it's in light of all of that, I'm, I'm sort of interpreting this verse or going through this verse backwards. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and in light of that, a new creation is revealed, a new heaven and a new earth. Peter could say, as he described this day again, 2 Peter, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's not a place of sin, but a place of righteousness. As we've already seen in chapter 22, no longer will there be anything accursed. All of the effects of the curse erased, gone, wiped clean. In Isaiah chapter 60, the prophet is describing this scene in language that we'll probably come back to many times as we walk through these chapters But Isaiah says, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. What's he saying? The Noahic covenant's going to end. The common kingdom, as we've heard, is going to be done away with. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. We're going to see that later in the chapter. And your days of mourning shall be ended. That's Revelation 21.4. But notice, here's the point that I want you to see. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. So when Peter says, according to the promise, we're awaiting new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, it's not just an ethical statement. It's referring to the inhabitants of the new heavens and the new earth. It's God who is righteousness, Christ who is made unto us righteousness, and the people of God, the people of righteousness, clothed with white robes. That's what Peter was longing for, according to the promise. We're longing for that. So that leads us to the next thing that John saw in Revelation 21, which was a new Jerusalem. He doesn't just see a new creation, but a new Jerusalem. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Now the holy city we saw back in chapter 11. A picture of the church preaching and yet suffering, kept and given over, trampled by the nations. The holy city is an illustration of the church of Jesus Christ. And then we have this reference to Jerusalem. But it's not just Jerusalem, it's a new Jerusalem. That's compared to not the old Jerusalem, the first Jerusalem. New and first. First. 
The first Jerusalem was the place repeatedly referred to as the place where God would make His name to dwell in the midst of His people. I'm going to show you where to go. They're in the wilderness. You can imagine them traveling and God says, you just keep going and I'll show you the place where you're going to settle down where I will make my name to dwell in the midst of the people. Jerusalem was the capital city of the promised land. Jerusalem was the city of the great king. At Jerusalem was Mount Zion, the stronghold of David. We were just talking before the service. David gets into Jerusalem, builds Jerusalem. He's established and then he says, there's still a Sabbath for the people of God. We're still looking out beyond this. David, like Abraham knew, this earth is not the end. In Jerusalem was the temple shown to David by God and built by Solomon. Jerusalem was where the glory of the Lord came and inhabited an immobile temple in the midst of the people of God. It wouldn't move. The tabernacle would move temple wouldn't move. It was a a city with foundations, we could say. The psalmist in Psalm 48 says, Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. In other words, Jerusalem was the particular place where God came down and dwelt with His people. Now here we see A new Jerusalem. It's not like the first Jerusalem. The first Jerusalem was temporal in nature. It was a city of this age. The new Jerusalem is an eternal city, a city of the age to come. New Jerusalem is the way the New Testament speaks of our eternal heavenly dwelling with God. For example, Galatians 4.26, The Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Our citizenship is is in heaven, Philippians 3. But it's also a present reality for the people of God. Hebrews 12, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. There He's speaking to the saints on earth. You're you're already a part of it. The concept of a new Jerusalem is a part of the already but not yet reality of our salvation in Christ. We've already received the spiritual citizenship. We've already received the Spirit of God as our down payment. God, Father and Son, making their home with us through the Holy Spirit. And yet we are awaiting the fullness of it. As the New Testament says, if any man is in Christ, new creation. That's it. It's already begun. We're already living as a part of the new creation which is to come. So we can think of this, this might help, in in terms of a reversal Motif. If you look at the first creation, God creates the heavens and the earth. He outfits the, hev- the earth as a dwelling place. Then He creates man and puts him in the garden on the earth. Now, in Christ, Christ sends His Spirit. He recreates individual believers through regeneration. They are new creation. And He's doing this constantly throughout the present age. And then at the end of the age, the creation itself will be renewed to be a dwelling place for these glorified sons of God. Romans 8.19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. When the sons of God are glorified, the very creation is going to be renewed to be our habitation. 
This creation can't stand glorified sons of God. It can't endure it. It's got to be recreated. And especially in light of the fact that God is going to come down and dwell with man once again. That's what we're seeing here. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The New Testament, as we know, repeatedly refers to the church as the bride of Christ. So the glorified church is coming down out of heaven prepared, fully prepared by God to dwell in the new creation which has been renewed as a dwelling place for God and man. The bride comes down, not being prepared, but prepared. Not being adorned, but adorned. Now in Ephesians 5, we do see that Christ is washing His bride with the water of of the Word of God so that He might present us, the church, to Himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's now. We're being sanctified. On this day, the work is done. He's finished that work and the bride comes down fully prepared, fully adorned and ready for her wedding day, the wedding supper of the Lamb. The new heavens and new earth are fully renovated for the people of God and new Jerusalem is the bride, the church. It's people. The church is coming down to dwell in this new creation. So we see a heavenly habitation. Then secondly, we have a divine explanation. As is often the case in the Revelation, what John hears explains what he sees. Sometimes what he sees explains what he hears. Here it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne. We've seen this over and over. The speaker is not identified, but we know this throne is the heavenly throne of God. And so we can say again, at the very least, it is a divine pronunciation or pronouncement if it's not God Himself speaking. He hears a voice from the throne, and this voice declares in propositional truths what the vision is meant to convey. There's no question about what this means. We read it, He tells us what it means. We see, He tells so, and, and we know this because it begins with the word behold in verse 3. Behold or look. John, you can imagine John, he's, he's seeing and he hears a voice saying, look. Now this is not to draw John's attention away from something else. It's, it's to emphasize, I'm going to explain to you what you're looking at. So we would ask, what do we see here? What's the main emphasis of the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. What does all this mean? What does it have to say to us? Here's what it means. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. A more literal rendering would sound like this. Look, you see... The tabernacle of God is with man. He will tabernacle with them. That's the word that's used here. Similar to what we see in John 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled amongst us. And then He was taken up into the heavens. And now we await the time when God once again comes down to tabernacle with His people. Now, the connections between this and the sojournings of of the patriarchs and the nation in the wilderness are are more numerous than we could even cover. 
you know, the tabernacle was a mobile dwelling. Set it up, tear it down. Set it up, tear it down. A mobile place. Jerusalem was the stationary copy, the stationary place. The, the picture in moving from the tabernacle to Jerusalem and the fact that the presence of God was with His people in all of it is just that. God is always with His people. He's with them even in, even in the, the mobile tabernacle and yet through that He's bringing them to the fixed place that doesn't move anymore. That was, that was what they longed for in an earthly sense. We, we were tired of moving all the time. We want to get to the place. Now here we have this image of New Jerusalem, a city, a fixed place, and it's mixed with the language of God coming down and tabernacling with His people. The point for these seven churches that John's writing to, the point for us that we ought to see here, is that in the eternal state, our sojournings are finished. That's what we're looking for. Right now we're sojourners. We're not sojourners there. We're not exiles there. We're exiles here. We're longing for that home. We, and we will come to a fixed, eternal rest. God comes and dwells with us. And as with the tabernacle and the temple, the there's the sense in which God is always with His people. Right now, He's with us. He draws near to us. He's with us and in His people. And at the same time, He's advancing towards this climactic end. That climactic settlement. We have the promised presence of God now. We have the Spirit now. And there's the climax still to come. It's already, but it's not yet. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. We do see now. If you're a Christian, you've been illuminated by the Spirit of God. You see things that other men can't see. You see. But it's, it's like a glass dimly. The, the greatest light, the greatest moments of, of revelation from God that you see, it's like a glass dimly. As I was telling Ben, Rutherford, Samuel Rutherford had these moments in prison where he said, I had to ask God to stop. Because God's presence dwelt so near to him, he says, I can't endure it. He had to ask for it to, to back off. And even that was just a glass dimly. Now, most of us can't even fathom that. Saints who suffer very often have those experiences. We, we do see but it's like through a, a, a dirty glass. Then, face to face, no barrier with God. He says in 1 John 3, this is John, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We are children now. We have been adopted into the family of God now. But there is a greater revelation of this adoption still to come. And look, you notice here, it comes and it's, and it's, it's perfected when we see Him. It's the, uh, the old writers call it the beatific vision. When we see Him, that's what does it. That moves away all of the blurriness and we see fully. We see God as He is. A more clear, glorified vision of God. See, these men, what they're saying is the goal, 
is seeing God. Getting to that place where we're with Him. And it's in this sense that even our salvation in Christ, in this life, the reconciliation that we've gotten, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, even that is a means to this. We're working that way. It's moving us to get to God. The believer who is content now with nothing more is not, is not living by faith the way that the Scriptures describe it. We're always looking out to this greater sight, this greater nearness of having God Himself dwell with us. Now, of course, the absence of the curse, a new heavens and a new earth, the immediate dwelling of God with us is going to result in many blessings. It's, that's going to produce something, not just, not just in creation, but in us and in our experience. Verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, or the first things, have passed away. Temporal things, the things of this age, they're gone. It's not, it's, it's not like it used to be. God's going to remove every effect of the fall and of sin. Tears of sorrow, gone. Death, gone. Mourning, for whatever reason. You, you, you lost a loved one, you, you, you lost a job, whatever it could be. Sadness, sorrow of any sort, Gone. Crying, pain, for, for whatever reason. Pain in the soul, pain in the body. It's gone. All of the direct effects of the entrance of sin into the world are erased at the second coming of Christ. Gone. Now, in the Revelation, this is to be compared with what happened when Babylon fell. Babylon the harlot. She fell. The bride comes down. As Babylon fell, the men of the world grieved and and it said that the sound of musicians was heard no more. Craftsmen found no more. The sound of the mill heard no more. The light of lamp will shine no more. The voice of bridegroom and bride are heard no more. And the point was that as Babylon falls, all of the empty and vain revelry of man is destroyed. All of their wood and hay and stubble, it's just burned up. It's gone. But as the bride, the new Jerusalem, comes down from heaven, it's the opposite. All the suffering of sin is gone. Which implies that true joy, true worship, the true delight of the saints, the full consummate joy and blessedness of the saints fills the atmosphere of the new creation. Everything accursed, gone. In other words, what the world has now will come to an end. And what the church lacks and longs for now is going to be brought to consummation. We could could say they have received their reward. They're getting it and it will burn. We are awaiting our reward. Looking forward to it. That that inheritance that's stored up in heaven for us. Imperishable, undefiled, fading not away. That's the heavenly explanation. It's an overview. and It's going to be opened up a little bit more as we move forward. Through it. Now, what does that do for you? What does this description do for Christians? For us, and, and I, I, as I studied this week and, and, and prayed through these things, and 
and tried to consider, you know, how, how does this apply? I realized that as we just heard, the blessings and the goodness of God to us have been so full, so much, that it makes it difficult for us to long for heaven. And, and, and I'll very often say, just think, heaven's going to be better than this. Every, every little piece of goodness that we experience is a, a, just the outskirts of what we'll experience there. So it's hard to long for heaven because it's been so good. We have so much. So how do you feel as you hear an overview of the, of the glorious state of the saints? The primary emphasis, again, is the beatific vision. It's being with God. It's seeing God. It's God dwelling with us forever. Even that we cannot comprehend. We, we, it's, it's another act of faith. I know it will be good. I can't explain it. Does this stir any desire within you? Or is the heavenly hope of the saints a footnote in your theological system? Paul said that there's a crown of righteousness stored up for all who've loved His appearing. The appearing of Christ. The blessings come to those who love the appearing of Christ. Who are longing to be with God. There ought to be something in every Christian that says, I want heaven. This is not my home. As with Abraham who longed for a city... And thus God was not ashamed to be called His God, though it is, so it is with us. We, we love the appearing of Christ. We crave for the appearing of Christ and the full presence of God. And so God is not ashamed to be called our God. Christ is not ashamed to call us His brothers because we love His appearing. We're waiting for that. That is, I would say, one of the most fundamental staples of Christian regeneration. As with Abraham, once he saw God, he knew, I'm going somewhere else. Once a person is regenerated in that moment, though they, we, none of us fully grasp this. And none of us are fully there when we're, where we're ready to say, leave it all behind and take me now. There's something that comes into the Christian where they say, there's more. And I'm looking forward to that. And God stirs that and increases that and stokes those flames. Again, suffering is one of the greatest things that stokes this flame. Loss. The men that we love to read who can describe these things, like Samuel Rutherford, he's sitting in jail for preaching. Those types of men, through that affliction and that suffering, the flames of God's Word are stoked and they long for their heavenly dwelling. Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. Those people. Is that you? Do you you long for and crave His appearing? Are you looking forward to it? Some would say that if we think about this stuff too much, we're going to become starry-eyed sky gazers, useful to nobody. They just sit around and look in the sky. What happens when you think this way? Listen to Peter's take on it. He says in 2 Peter 3, 11-13, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the inevitable conclusion of believing what the Bible teaches about heaven. Holiness. Separation. I don't live like them. Why not? This ain't my home. 
I'm a stranger here. We'd be like going to a foreign country and driving on the right side of the road. You can't do that. Well, I'm sorry, I'm just not used to it. I'm not from here. Godliness. Our citizenship is in heaven or our conversation. The way that we carry ourselves is there. We live like people from a different country. That's what happens when you believe what the Bible teaches about heaven. And also an eager longing, hastening the coming of the day of God. We are a stranger and a sojourner on the earth, and so we we live holy lives, we live godly lives, we long for what's coming. So that's Peter's answer. We could go to Hebrews 11 again, we could read of the exploits of all of the the saints that are named there, and we could see what kind of, of, of life this kind of faith produces. I'll give you a hint if you've not read it. It's not inactivity. Because of the already but not yet reality, this inbreaking of the new creation in the spiritual kingdom of Christ now, those who are truly new creatures are going to live now like citizens of a new Jerusalem. Now the difference is, we still have to wage against the effects of remaining sin. We're not glorified yet. We're not perfected yet. In glory, we're all perfected. Faithful people then are Holy people. Faithful people are godly people. Faithful people eagerly long for heaven because heaven already is to them. They have in them the conviction of things not seen. The substance of it. It's in them already. The substance of heaven is there. Christian faith is far more than an act of a moment which takes hold of Christ. It's not absent of that. But Christian faith takes hold of an unseen Christ because it takes hold of all of the promises of God which will culminate in glory. Christian faith recognizes the fading nature of creation and looks away from the creature and to the God who remains. That was another... I was thinking of how to even preach this. And I was thinking, well, what do we see here? Everything not God changing. God continuing. Everything not God is going to fade. God remains. Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. We have a firm foundation who have a hope in God. That was speaking of, that was quoted in Hebrews 1 as a reference to Christ. He's the one who never changes. He's the the rock, the cornerstone of this city with foundations. So examine yourself on this one point. I wrote one point and then I wrote three. Do I truly long to be with God? That's more than just, do I long to be a Christian? That's more than just, do I long to go to heaven? Do, Do I truly long to be with God? Does my activity, my living now, issue forth from longing to be with God? That motivates us. It's the beginning and the end. I'm going to be with God. Is that really your motivation? Why are you doing what you're doing? Well, I just want to be with God. Looking forward to being with God. 
Do I exhibit true Christian faith? All of that would be the same thing. This is Christian faith 101, longing to be with God. So faith is a grace that's given to us by the Holy Spirit, which means it's going to have its ups and downs. It's going to start out often very weak and increase and grow over time. A lot of times it's two steps forward, five steps back, but it increases and it grows. And the way that it grows, again, is by the the Holy Spirit working in us. Uh, The Spirit works in us the virtue which is found in Christ Himself. While Abraham is set forth as the preeminent man of faith, it is not by virtue of Abraham that our faith increases because there is one, the Scripture reveals to us who is more preeminent in faith than Abraham. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Not acting a justifying faith by which He would be reconciled to God, but by living this overarching worldview of faith. As we see again in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before Him, He met with His betrayer, was mocked, beaten, crucified, the hands of men, the, the, the kings of the earth gathered to crucify Him, all of that going as a sheep with His mouth silent to the slaughter. Why? Joy set before Him. He had a, he had a promise from His Father that there will be a victory through this. That is the preeminent faith. When we come to the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is observing a means of grace, a way in which something we do physically teaches us something that God has written in His Word and revealed in Christ, and, by, and through that, meditating upon Christ Himself, and the Spirit uses that to stir in us and increase these various graces, and faith being one of them. If you're, if you're of weak faith, and all of us, really, we come to the Lord's Supper, we remember Christ crucified, His death, and then we, we consider, there He hangs for the joy that was set before Him, exercising faith even when He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He still cried out. So as we consider the Lord's table and as we give our attention to His death, meditate upon that. Christ, the most faithful, the most useful, the most heavenly-minded man to ever walk the face of the earth and ask that... God, through the Spirit, would give you an increase of grace coming from Christ Himself.